After a decade in pastoral ministry, he spent three decades in healthcare, including healthcare administration. He's also a coach, an executive coach, and an author. He's Dr. Dick Tibbetts. I'm John Bradshaw, and this is our conversation. Dr. Dick Tibbetts, thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate you taking your time. We've got a lot of ground to cover, I know, because yours has been a really fascinating life. Let's go back to the beginning. Uh, where did you start? Where were you born and raised? So, Rome, New York. We call it upstate New York. That's upstate, upstate. And my dad was a Harley Davidson dealer. Oh, really? And so I was born to be wild, right? Yes, you were. <laughs> Look at that. A Harley Davidson dealer. That was back in the day when Harley Davidson's weren't toys for wealthy guys who don't know what Greece looks like. It was you, you were a Harley rider if you were riding Harleys. Oh, yeah. It was after the war, and so everybody was you know, wanting to get out and do something, enjoy the freedom. And so my dad had a dealership, and I worked on motorcycles. And, and we had the, the, the riders come in, the motorcycle gangs come in. We had it all. What does it say about your dad? And, and I'm asking that genuinely. What does it say about your dad? That he worked with motorcycles. Was he a mechanical? Was he mechanically inclined? Did he fall into it, or was he a bit of a rebel himself? Huh. After uh, he was an airplane mechanic in World War II. There we go. And so when the war ended, he had to figure out what he wanted to do, and he really didn't want to go to work for a company. And so uh, he contacted Harley Davidson because he saw the motorcycles uh, riding around. And back then, you had to order two motorcycles to become a dealer. And so my dad could afford one, and his dad bought one to sell, and that's how it started in 1949. Was it a successful dealership? It was. Yeah. Uh, my dad ran it until he retired, and my brother ran it after that. Oh, how about that? Mm -hmm. You ended up, not ended up, well, you began your professional life as a pastor. Were you always going to be a pastor? Was that the thing from a child? No. No? No. I wanted to be a motorcycle racer, and I loved getting out there and going as fast as I could. Um, we are lucky to have you here, yeah, by the sounds of it. Very lucky. Yeah. And the problem is my dad and I were both a bit headstrong, and so we didn't always see things the same way. And I decided I needed to go out on my own, and I wanted to go to college. My dad never graduated from high school, so he didn't really see the need for college. He had a thriving business, yeah. good income, and so he really wasn't supportive of that. And so I figured out the only way I was going to get to college as if I became a theology major, because my dad couldn't say no to being a minister. Oh, well, yeah. So I wasn't sure if that's what I wanted to do. It was, it was an option, but I told my dad that's what I wanted to do. So I like to tease that my rebellion was to go into ministry. Yeah, look at that, a rebel, <laughs> a rebel. The, the, the rebel pastor. Yeah. What did you ride when you were racing motorbikes? What were you riding? So um, Harley-Davidson's, yeah. of course, and uh, it was a venue called Scrambles back then. Today it's motocross. Yeah. Dirt track riding with left and right turns and jumps. Yeah. And was it, uh, how exciting was it? I mean, did you ever come to grief? I mean, someone wants to know you. I mean, because you can die doing that stuff. Yeah, I raced at the regional level. Never got uh, good enough or had the equipment good enough to go national. But, uh, yeah, it was dangerous. Yeah. I, I fell a few times, yeah. ended up, you know, being toted off and having break many, to be, Break many bones? Never broke a bone. No. Just... Cut skin and stitches and that kind of thing. I rode a motorbike for a while just just to commute. Nothing nothing mm -hmm. powerful. And it came off once in the wet and once when a woman pulled out in front of me and uh, both times put the bike down and was able to get up and ride away. <laughs> Man, 
I've done that too on the road, and that's Man. it's actually scarier on yeah, the road because you're yeah. going faster. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, motorcycle. I mean, look, they're great things, aren't they? Motorbikes, little yeah. little danger. No, they're not dangerous. Yeah, exactly. They're not dangerous. It's the people who don't see you. The people who don't see you. The people yeah. who back out of their driveways. Yeah. The people who turn yeah. without thinking yeah. of you. Yeah, that's a tough thing. However, driving really fast on two wheels is probably a little dangerous. It it was fun. I mean. Life is what you focus on, and I focused on the challenge. If I would have thought about the danger, I shouldn't be racing. Yeah, no, true, true. So you ended up uh, studying theology. Did you enjoy the study? I did. Yeah? Um, I was challenged. My roommate, his dad was a city judge and really wanted me to go into law school and join his practice. Ah. And so I struggled whether I would switch to law or stay in theology and had what I call my Damascus Road experience. Yeah, tell me about that. I was on vacation, and I was driving home. I was visiting a friend and driving home, and it was, the roads were a little icy, and an 18-wheeler truck lost control, and we were both doing about 55, 60 miles an hour, and we hit head-on. Oh. And I blacked out, but I, I remember holding on to the steering wheel and thinking, this is the end. That's all I can remember. And I, next thing I knew, I was pulled out of the vehicle. I saw the vehicle later. The hood broke through the windshield broke off the steering wheel. The two hinges went into the back seat. And this was in the day when seatbelts, most cars didn't have seatbelts. Right. And to this day, I believe that an angel pushed me down because if I would have been sitting there, that, that that's, hood would that's, have, come, that's where it came it right would have decapitated me. And that was back in the day when those, those big, strong cars folded like paper bags. Yeah. You know, yeah. a, a, some little tin can today stands up better under yeah. an accident than those, those yeah. bigger cars back in the day. There was no crimple support. It was just, yeah. boom, that's it. So, man, that was, that was really a near-death experience. It was. And, and, and all of a sudden I realized that life is precious. Yeah. Life is short. Remember, I, I never looked at that side of the equation. It was right. always gusto, go for it, do it. Yeah. And now I got balanced with life is fragile. Life is, uh, there's something more to life than just what I can do today and tonight. And at that time, at the moment of that accident, or when you saw the car, were you, were you aware God saved me? Were you, were you aware of that? Yes. Yeah. That, was, that was a prominent thought in my mind because I shouldn't have been alive. And, um, I mean, this was an 18-wheeler truck. This yeah. was a big piece of equipment, yeah. head-on, at speed. And the car was totaled. Um, the damage was unbelievable. They, they couldn't get me out the, uh, the driver's door, so they had to pry open the passenger door and pull me out that What way. happened to you physically? This is what's remarkable. I believe an angel pushed me down. And what happened to me is both knees had stitches from being jammed up. Yeah. And the hinge of the hood sliced my scalp, laid it open, but never cracked my skull. Oh, well. And, of course, you know, a head wound bleeds like crazy. And so they weren't sure how bad I was hurt because I'm drenching in blood. But never cracked a bone. Wow, really? Yes. So I asked what that did to you physically. What did it do to you emotionally? Anything? You know, at that age, emotionally, I'm not too sure, yeah. but spiritually, yeah, that's very clearly, um, I saw that God's handwriting in my life. I believe that God had a purpose for me. And all of a sudden, being a theology major, because that was my rebellion, became that was my calling. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just uh, graduated and went straight to seminary yeah. and into ministry. So you get a master's degree, and, and this, this accident added impetus to your ministry. Impetus and clarity. Um, it also showed me that no matter where you are or who you are, God has a plan for you. God can rescue you. 
And yeah. God is always present with people. And so in my ministry, I never looked at the person as being isolated from God, no matter how, no matter what lifestyle they chose, no matter how they lived. I always saw God working in their lives. And, and that changed my view of how I did ministry. Now, before long, while we're here, I'm going to talk to you about the fantastic book you wrote, Forgive to Live. You've written another book that's available right about now on a, a different subject, but very inter- uh, um, interesting. Mm-hmm. You've worked with executives uh, and you've coached executives. I yes. want to talk about what that is and how that works. But before we get there, okay. you came out of seminary mm-hmm. as a newly minted pastor. Yeah. Where'd you go? Uh, Southern Inland Conference. Okay. So my f- first church was in Norwich in Willimantic, Connecticut. Uh-huh. And interesting enough, my head elder was Jim Finley, which was Mark Finley's dad. His dad? How about that? And so I got to know Mark and his family very well because I was the family pastor. Yeah. And just impressed with that family and their dedication and commitment. Um, yeah. And, and love that church. They, they were good to me. Stu Jane was our conference president. Uh-huh. And one of the requirements of a new uh, seminary student before ordination is that you do an evangelistic campaign. Sure. Uh, so, amen. So I asked my conference president if he would do it with me, and he said he would. So we did an evangelistic campaign, and I dubbed it the Dick and Jane Evangelistic <laughs> Team. And <laughs> I would kid good. him and say, our motto was, see Dick, see Dick run. Run, Dick, run. <laughs> <laughs> but we worked as a team, and, and, and it was a wonderful experience. We baptized... 27 people Fantastic. in a church with a membership of 70. So it really wow, altered yeah. that church and brought a lot of young people and a lot of life into that church. God blessed. When you think back on the decade you spent in ministry, um, what are the highlights? I don't necessarily mean events, but what do you look back as, this was what I really enjoyed about it? So I told you about the evangelistic effort, and, and that was very rewarding to have young people and young adults coming to find the Lord from various backgrounds. Yeah. It was just a matter of, of finding their needs and being relevant and, and being active. From there, I went to Pioneer Valley Academy and had all these uh, young people in, in school and just lives to mold and to touch and, and to change. And then I became the conference youth director and ran summer camps and, and all the things, the activities that, that does. But yeah. if you were to ask me what's the thread that tied it all together for me, it was touching and changing people's lives by caring for them, by hearing their concerns, and by being present in their, in their difficulties. Okay, that's the thread that goes through your entire professional career. It really does, yeah. yes. When you were at any stage of, of your decade in, in pastoral ministry and youth work and so forth, now looking back you can say, you know, the thread that ran through it was. At the time, did you know that that was the thread that was running through your ministry? Could you identify it? I got there this way. Um, they would come to me with problems, uh, dysfunctional families, abuse, um, all kinds of uh, arguments, uh, running away from home, you know, just difficult situations. And in and, and a very real way, I felt helpless. Yeah. And all my training, I, I had answers to questions, but they weren't the questions they were asking. Right. And so I said, I'm not sure how to help in the real world with real people's concerns other than let's pray about it and, and here's a text that I found helpful. And, and that was important, but I felt there was something missing. Well, there is something missing from that. You're right. Yeah, and so I made the decision that I needed to go on and get more education and learn how to do better listening and, and 
helping people find themselves more with more clarity. So what was that training you got? So uh, Southern New England, so Boston's in Southern New England. Yeah. Should be a good college in Boston, You'd right? You think you might be able to find one or two, right? <laughs> and so I did. I, I, I went to um, University of Massachusetts, and I went to Harvard, and I went to um, Andover Newton's uh, Theological School. You went to Harvard? To interview to get accepted. Okay, okay. Yes, and yeah. got accepted in those schools. You got accepted to Harvard. But I, but I chose. No, no, hold on. Yeah. Come back. You got accepted to Harvard. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. It was scary too. Yeah. Because the prerequisites they had um, were just some were languages, and I had to have two languages. Well, you had two languages. Besides English. Oh. And I just was struggle with language, and it couldn't be. Uh, Hebrew or Greek, because those were not spoken languages. That's what I'm saying. You had those. I know, but yeah. it had to be spoken languages. Oh, you need to, to read books or German, to to yeah. read original resources in the original yeah. language. And yeah. I said, you know what? I can't do that. So I I chose not to go there. I went to... Uh, so you turned them down. You turned down Harvard. <laughs> I did. Dick Tibbetts, the man who turned down, who said no to Harvard. I did. Oh, I like that. I did. Yeah. Um, so you went to Andover Newton. I went to Andover Newton. That's in Boston. It's in Boston. Yep. It's in uh, Newton Center, which is uh, a suburb of Boston, yep. but yes. And um, I went there because they had a stronger clinical program. And and so you did uh, classes, but you also did counseling in a counseling center. You went to a hospital and did pastoral education and pastoral care. Mm. And so it was more hands-on. There was a classroom, but I really wanted a, the uh, applied portion of it. And Andover Newton, I thought, offered that. Uh, the best. And you got a PhD there? Actually, it's a D-min degree, okay. a doctor of ministry. Yeah. And you, uh, in what? In, you focused on? It was pastoral psychotherapy. Wow, that sounds helpful, actually. Helpful. And then full circle, Andover Newton partnered with Harvard for the Harvard Library. So I had free access to the entire oh, Harvard cool. Library. Nice. And I could take a couple of classes and apply them to my degree. So, so I actually got to, to rub elbows with... Um, uh, Harvard with the uh, University of Massachusetts and some classes there and transferred them into Andover Newton. That had to felt good. <laughs> huh? Yeah. I mean, really? Yeah. But, you know, the intellectual exercise was important because you yeah. need to understand the theory, the structure, the framework around which you, you need to focus your thinking. Uh-huh. But I found the practical, applied piece of it most rewarding mm-hmm. when you're really sitting down and talking to people in crisis and helping them, and then going back with your professor, because it was all done through a one-way mirror, going back to your professor and talking about what occurred, what you heard the person say. Maybe they heard him say something and I missed it. Maybe I said something that wasn't helpful that I thought was helpful. And getting that constant feedback just helped me to see things from a broader, more holistic perspective. You transitioned into healthcare. Tell me about that transition and, and what you did as you transitioned. So when I finished my degree, um, Kettering Medical Center in, in near Dayton, Ohio, mm. um, wanted to start a pastoral counseling center and wanted to have someone come and train students, uh, pastors, mm-hmm. to do pastoral care. So I got certified as a clinical pastoral educator and taught pastors how to do pastoral care. And Kettering wanted that. And so um, I had some debt for my doctoral degree, and Kettering agreed to pay it. So I went there as a chaplain and a chaplain educator. Interesting that a... A healthcare facility, Kettering Hospital, would want to get involved in investing in pastors like that. Where do you think that came from? What was the, what was the rationale? So I, I really believe it came from uh, their sense of mission. Uh, they're an Advent facility, and they can get 
caught up in that we're running a hospital. Yeah, sure. And all the business of that and everything else. And and the CEO had the vision that says, you know, we're more than a hospital. We have a mission. We're a part of the church. And if we can help pastors be better pastors, and, and pastors from all different denominations, yeah. then th- in the community they will have an appreciation for Kettering because they learn to develop themselves there. Sure. They'll speak positively to their congregations about Kettering. Those people will hear that and say, oh, Kettering's a good place to go to. Yeah. They integrate the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. Mm-hmm. That does sound tremendously helpful. Yeah. So you, you were there, but, but I don't know how long it was, but you've spent 30 or so years living in Florida. So you went from there to Florida? Yep. Yeah. Yep. They, um, every business has its good years and its bad years. And, and at the end of the 10 years there, Kettering was having some bad years financially. And so they decided to do a process called re-engineering, which is a, um, a catchword during that time. This was the 80s. And, yeah. And yeah, we know that's a euphemism. It's a euphemism. It's, it's, and I, I don't know what it means, but I know ultimately it means layoffs. some people are walking out the door. <laughs> it means layoffs. Yeah. Fewer staff. And so they decided that they had too many uh, administrators and they needed to reduce the number in half. Uh, oh, and so, yeah, that's it was a deep a, cut. It was draconian. Yeah. And I was one of the half. And yeah. so I uh, was let go. How'd that feel? Well, we'll talk about that more when we talk about forgiveness. Aye, because okay. That was painful. Yeah. You know, 20 years of, of denominational employment as a pastor for 10, at Kettering for 10, and then all of a sudden being told that, like yesterday's newspaper, well, thank you for the headlines. We're done with you. And yeah. into the pile you go. And, yeah. and unemployed and just done. No transition. You just go home. And so, yes. Mm. At a time in your life, if you've been in ministry for 20 years, you know, you're in your 40s now. You're your peak. Yeah. Yeah. High energy, high... uh, High, typically high debt, high commitments. Yeah. You've got a family. You have a spouse. My daughter's going to college next year. Yes. You don't want to be unemployed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's going to be tough. Which reminds me, we will soon be talking about forgiveness. You you wrote a book that has impacted lots and lots Mm -hmm. of people, including me, Forgive to Live. Yes. Uh, seeing as we're about to go to a break, just take a minute and talk to me about your most recent book, because we'll talk about that too, but tease that a little bit. What's it about? Sure. So um, when I retired uh, from Florida Hospital, um, I didn't want to totally go from 100 to zero. No, no. So I want to do something to keep me involved. And and so what I decided to do was executive coaching and focus specifically, because there was a great need at the time, hospitals were hiring doctors as chief medical officers in large numbers because they needed to raise their uh, quality scores mm-hmm. because reimbursement was being not only for doing the procedure but for the level of quality. And so um, my job or the job I did was to train physicians who were excellent doctors to transition them into being highly qualified executives. And basically that meant I'm in charge of the show, you know, the surgeon who's in the surgery room you do this, I need this, put this in my hand. They yep. call the shots and everyone obeys. To an executive where all of a sudden now I'm a team member, my opinion's interesting, but I have another opinion. Oh, guess what? We both have vice president titles, so you don't tell me what to do. Right. That's a different dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, so we had to go from orders to influencing. How do I influence people to see the importance of what I'm trying to suggest? And so that was what I, I did as I educated. And I did that all along the East Coast from Miami all the way up to um, Michigan. Fantastic. Well, we're going to talk some more about that. I'm glad you're here for this. This is a fascinating journey. And 
It's only going to get more fascinating. He is Dr. Dick Tibbetts. I'm John Bradshaw. This is our conversation brought to you by It Is Written. It's a land rich with culture. Colorful bazaars, stunning mosques, and ancient ruins now occupy the same territory once conquered by the Persian, Greek, and Roman empires. In the midst of this tumultuous history, followers of Christ began to form their first churches. One of these churches was instructed by Jesus to be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. What were the believers in Sardis missing? And how is this letter to a church that existed 2,000 years ago relevant to the church today? Find out by watching The Seven Churches of Revelation, Sardis, and learn what it means to truly overcome. The Seven Churches of Revelation, Sardis, brought to you by It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw. My guest is Dr. Dick Tibbetts, a life of ministry, administration in the healthcare field, and then a second act as an executive coach and a performance coach. So we're about to dig into that just a little bit. (laughs) You made it to Florida. Yes. Worked in the organization then known as Florida Hospital. Today, Advent Health. Today, Advent Health. Mm -hmm. You went down there to do what? Because a moment ago, you had lost a job. Yes. So I was glad to have a job offered to me, yeah. and I went down there for two things. One, to uh, as a CP supervisor, to train pastors to do pastoral care, to be more effective listeners, more effective um, helpers to intervene with people in crisis. Uh, most often in a hospital, of course, it's a health crisis, yeah. but whatever the crisis is. Yeah. And the second thing was to bring insights and help in the formation of the model of Celebration Health. And Celebration Health was a, a venture that Florida Hospital partnered with the Disney Company in this new community called Celebration to provide the health segment of that whole community. Mm. I mean, what an opportunity that was, right? What a, and an interesting opportunity to design something new. Of course, Disney, of course, just... The pixie dust and, and, and the creativity they bring yeah. uh, was exciting. And so we had parallel missions. Disney, of course, is to create happiness. Ours was to create health. Yeah. And Disney challenged us to say, we want you to make a healthier community, not just to have a high-quality hospital. And so one of our measures of success with the Disney company was the people that came to our campus, we, we were challenged to say, Half the people that come to your campus should be coming for health and, and to better their lives, and half will become because of illnesses and to improve their health. And so we did all kinds of creative things to, to create interest in the community. So we, we opened a restaurant, the first hospital in the United States that had a, a fire-burning stove inside the hospital so that we could make breads and pizza with nice crusts. Oh, cool, yeah. So the community would want to come. So we, we were a community restaurant. Yeah. And we were the health option. And there were several restaurants and we were listed as one of the community restaurants. So everybody that came from the community to eat with us, healthy reason. Yeah. We did a wellness center with typical things like your pool and your your weight rooms, etc. But we went a step further and we did, at that time, very novel, 3D exercises where the kids would put on goggles 
and they would chase things and do things, and it was all virtual, and they'd be getting exercise. That was ahead of the curve. That was ahead of the curve, but well, because of Disney, we were able to do that. Oh, sure. We had treadmills in the pool, so the people who, who had, were overweight could do walking without stressing their joints nice. because the water would help buoy them. Yeah. So we had underwater treadmills. We did a whole lot of things. We had a whole retail section where people could come and, um, and for a variety of, of, of things. So that we invited people to come not just because something was broken, but to prevent something from becoming worse. At Florida Hospital, you ended up with a really interesting title. Explain the title and, uh, and what that represented, what you were doing in that capacity. So ultimately, I got the title of Chief People Officer. Yeah, how about that? Yeah. And so what that meant was I looked over, uh, at that time, we had about 7,500 employees, and my responsibility was to, to do traditional HR things. So in some ways, I was the Vice President of Human Resources. But because I had been the Director of Pastoral Care, and a lot of people saw me in that light, yep. My job really broadened to how do we create an environment where people want to come to work, where we engage our employees, where we work with them to do better. We don't just tell them what to do, but, but we work collaboratively. And then we measured that, and we brought in a, a, um, a measurement for employee engagement, and, and we looked at how can we improve that from year to year. And so, yeah, responsible for the culture and the people who worked at that, that institution. That sounds like that would have been right up your alley, was it? It was perfect fit for me yeah. because I get my energy from people. Um, you know, I, I understand every organization has to have goals and you have to have checklists of things that get done and you have to measure and all of that's important because that's how you measure success. Yeah. But the balance of that is the culture, the people, how I feel at work. Do I feel like I have a friend at work? Do I feel like I can come to work and my work is meaningful? It's not just a job. Mm. And, and that culture excites me and, and creating that and speaking to that and encouraging supervisors and even educating uh, supervisors and directors how to do that in their departments. So how do you do that? Look, if you're, a, if you're a heart surgeon, one would think finding motivation to do your work and realizing you make a difference pretty easy. Very if you're terrible. a nurse, pretty mm-hmm. easy. Mm-hmm. But if you're one of the cleaning staff, or you answer the phones, and I don't say this to demean those roles, they're important roles, they're, they're great roles, but you might say to yourself, man, anybody can do what I do, how am I making a difference? How do you communicate to somebody that whatever their position, they're actually making a difference in furthering the mission of the organization? That's a great question. So you want to always tie what they're doing to, to the patient. Remember, um, we're there to serve the patient. Yeah. And so let's take the housekeeper for an example. You can get the greatest nursing care in the world, but if the room isn't cleaned, sterile, and, and there's uh, germs or, and the patient gets an infection, they go downhill. Yeah. I don't care who the nurse or the doctor is, That's they go right. downhill. That's right. You, housekeeper, you made that difference. You saved that person's life by creating an environment that kept them safe. And that's true, too. It is absolutely true. Yeah. And so I'd go in and, and you'd see the housekeeper's eyes light up and they say, I really do make a difference. Yeah, nice. My job really does matter. I'm not just cleaning a shelf. I'm not just dusting. I'm saving someone's life. I'm yes. preventing them from getting an infection. Yeah. And if I don't do my job right, no one else can get their job done. That's right. true. That's right. The best yep. surgeon, best nurses, best whatever. Yep. If it's a, if it's a grotty yep. environment, then all of that is for naught. 
And the mission of Florida Hospital is to extend the healing ministry of Christ. And we taught that to every single employee. And so those that we serve, how do we extend to them our health message and our mission? Uh, And so the more you create that, the more you create purpose, the more people have purpose, then their jobs have meaning. It's just when you're doing routine and you go one room, next room, next room, that can get pretty, that's factory work. Yeah. And we we wanted them to see every employee to see how they made Florida Hospital effective and how the patient who came there got better care because of that employee. You wrote a book that has impacted lots of people. Forgive to Live, How Forgiveness Can Save Your Life, Not Change, Not Alter, Not Improve. You went so far as to say, save. We'll talk about the book in a second. Let's come back to the impetus to write the book. You went through a difficult experience of your own. Yes, we talked about that in the last segment about being laid off. Laid off. And now you carried that with you? Was that eating you up? It was. You you went to a new place. You got a new job, got a new title, all this stuff. Well, there was a a gap, though. There was several months before I got the new job. You got your feet on the ground and and you got your sea legs. But in spite of the fact now you got a salary, living in a nice home, presumably, your family's happy and settled and all that. Yeah. Still something eating at you. Why did this happen? It doesn't go away. It, it, it converts into what I call a grievance story. You know, grief is loss. Yeah. And I lost something. Yeah. Um, I went from such an optimist who, you know, put your energy and your enthusiasm in it and it'll work out to, whoa, things don't always work out, yeah. no matter how hard you try. And that hit you pretty hard. And that hit very hard. It kind of showed me that I, I was very success-oriented. And failure wasn't an option. Interesting. And now I've got failure in my life. Was it failure? Felt like failure. Felt like failure. Yeah. It felt like, and, and it would be failure if I allowed it to be. Yeah. It doesn't really matter if it's failure or not, right? When you're told you're surplus to requirements, it feels like failure. Oh, yeah. I could go back and say I wasn't fired for anything I did. It was right. simply a cost savings and, and justify it. But the truth is, it was like anyone else that got let go. I'm gone. I'm cut off. Yeah. The, all my friends, I'm no longer have access to. Yeah. I'm isolated. What that do to you? Well, initially, it affected my health. I, I, really? I, oh, I started eating poorly. Um, I was always home alone, and I didn't do that well. So I'm watching TV programs that I would never watch. Sure. Uh, I'm talking like soaps or game shows. They bored me to tears, but I didn't know what else to do. Um, and and here was the kicker for me. I was hesitant to go out and look for another job. Because I said, why should I put myself in a position that no matter how well I do, if for any reason they don't want me, yeah. it's gone. Oh, tough. And so I was struggling with, do I go the entrepreneur route and start a business on my own, and right. that way nobody can fire me? Right. Or do I have a calling, and, 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 and can I find a home in the church that I love and the ministry that I love? And that ultimately won the day. Did you take it personally? And what I mean by that, that is this. Somebody, a human, ultimately made the decision. Yes. Whether it was a committee of humans, right. but there was a human yep. who made the decision. Did you take it personally? Did you feel like you had an axe to grind or a vendetta against certain individuals? Did you feel bitter towards the person who ultimately was responsible for letting you go? I have to admit I did. Yeah. And, and, and for years I held on to that um, because they were my friends. Yeah. We did things together as families. We went out to things. We went to church together. You know, we, all of this history, and they can make a decision without, from my perspective anyhow, 
any understanding of the impact that I have on my life. And, and yeah, I didn't want to talk to him. Yeah. I didn't want to see him. Yeah. Um, and, and that did eat away. That was, that was a cancer from within that had to be treated because if it wasn't, um, anytime someone said something or did something that shattered what I saw them to be like, it came all came back up again. So you, you wrote the book about forgiveness. And in here, there's all kinds of different things. I wanted to ask you about one one aspect, but I'll, I'll save that because I want to get ahead of myself. Uh, how to forgive, what forgiveness is all about, what unforgiveness does, how unforgiveness is actually really bad for you, how forgiveness can actually save your life. Mm-hmm. Did you write this because you went through the process and figured all this out? Did you write this as you were figuring forgiveness out? Had you forgiven and then you explored this and you learned new things along the way? I mean, is this autobiographical or only to a part? So it's autobiographical for sure. Uh, it came out of my experience. And the impetus to write that is interesting. Um, remember I told you about the partnership between Florida Hospital and Disney? Yeah. Well, our whole uh, theme in the Creation Life, um, which we formed that Creation Health acronym, uh, the choice, and, and I was instrumental in that. And we saw that and, and we boiled that down to our work is to heal the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. What was missing was the spirit. How were we healing people using spiritual interventions? Right. You know, mind was easy, you know, how to, how to deal with stress, how to deal. Body was easy, weight control, stop smoking things. But spiritual, the only thing we had spiritual was a chaplain would come and visit you. Mm. And we had no way of measuring did that improve your health or your outcomes. So what I desired to do was to say, can I take my experience that, that altered my life and my health? I mean, my blood pressure was high. I put on weight. I was going down the wrong road for my health. Can I turn that around with a spiritual intervention? And at the time, I went to a program at Duke University that Dr. Redford Williams taught. He wrote the book, Anger Kills. And what he did is he really showed through good science and good studies how people's health, particularly focused on heart disease, deteriorated because of hostility, because of held on to anger. Mm. And then what he showed is that people can release anger. And, of course, the way they did it there was to teach anger management. If people could release the anger, their heart metrics actually improved. And I said, isn't that interesting? Because I have anger and my health went down. Can I turn that around? And, of course, I had a degree in psychology. And so I, I understood anger management. And I said, you know, in some ways that's a little shallow. Is there something spiritual that's more profound and and deeper than that? And that's when I came across, you know, forgiveness is what I need to do. I went to seminary. I took a course in grace. I understood forgiveness. Christ forgave us of our sins after all. And like a light bulb went on. And I said, I need to forgive those who made the decision to let me go. So that's how you came to it. I mean, the light bulb came on. Yeah. That's really interesting. I guess it was God impressing you and... And you put it all together after the things that you've observed and yeah. learned and experienced and said forgiveness will make the difference. And and just let me interrupt saying, I experienced how difficult it was to forgive. Yeah. Because even though I knew that's what I had to do, these characters who made that decision were still deep in my heart as yeah. people I don't like. Did you know forgiveness would address this or did you think Forgiveness would address it. How certain were you when you had when that light bulb went on? Mm-hmm. How certain were you? Yeah, this is it. So at one level, I believed it. Okay. 
but I needed to prove it, and I yeah, wasn't okay, sure. Okay. So it was an unproven hypothesis. It was an unproven hypothesis, and I didn't know what the data would say. Okay. But you were pretty sure. I was hopeful. Okay, hopeful. I had faith. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't have proof. So how did you go about forgiving? Was it just a, yeah, I forgive them. I, <laughs> I tried that, but it didn't work that, too that well. didn't work. <laughs> no. And, 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 and the reason I'm asking you these questions is because everybody has forgiveness issues. Yeah. And people have done that. People have forgiven and then woken up the next day and said, it's all still there. It they've is. forgiven again. And they've said, it's all still there. I know. And they said, I've tried to forgive, but how do I forgive? Yeah. You wrestled with that. What do you do? So I, I said, it's got to be more than the words. It has okay. to be more than the decision, although th- those are important. You've important. got to choose forgiveness because if you don't, you never forgive. Yeah. But then what do I do? Now, remember my background is counseling. I said, what can I draw from that? that because counseling likes to image itself as science. You know, it's, it's all fact, and if you do this, you get this result. And I'm, I lived in an environment in healthcare where it's fact, not faith, that determines what we do. Sure. So a doctor doesn't say, well, I hope this will work. No, he's got some evidence that it will work. So it's evidence-based. So I had to find that evidence. So there's two things. How do you teach it? How do you define it so that it's transferable? I can teach you steps. And I knew that that had to be mental. What goes on in my brain? Yeah. Ultimately, it's spiritual. But I'm meeting people who may or may not have a faith. So i got to give them a tool that they can understand and that that tool lead to something more significant and important. Mm. So you said the words, but you had to do more than that. How, yes. how, how did you work this out? How did you, because you got to the place where the forgiveness was absolutely real and it worked yeah. and it was effective and so forth. How did you, what steps did you take right. to work through yeah. to make this real? So the first thing you have to deal with is resistance. I don't want to, you know, I know I should forgive, but I don't want to forgive that person. Uh-huh. So why don't I? And so I came to the conclusion that the way I looked at that person is, that person that once was my friend, now is my enemy. What changed? Yeah. Did that person change or did my view of them change? And so I recognize that, the, that in order to be forgiving, I have to challenge my mental picture. Okay. And I have to go from black and white, they're all good and now they're all bad, to something that, that's more realistic. And so I drew upon a concept called reframing. Yes. And reframing is, I see it this way now, but if I keep changing what's in the picture, altering the picture, it frames it differently. And this is what I was going to ask you about before. Yeah. They, uh, they laid off 50% of the administrators. Yep. They didn't have to lay off you, but they did. Mm-hmm. Reframing says, hang on a minute, they had to make some deep cuts. And so that begins to get you to the place where you understand where they're coming from you, you draw the frame. The frame was around, I got laid off by those rascals. Right. Now you push it out and you say, hang on a minute, those rascals, maybe they're not rascals. Maybe they're administrators wrestling with certain issues. Maybe this was hard for them. I'm going to come back to you and ask you yeah, about that, that the way you reframed yeah. that and how it worked for you. Because as it worked for you, it'll work for absolutely yes. anyone. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He's Dr. Dick Tibbetts. I'm John Bradshaw. More in a moment of our conversation brought to you by It Is Written. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about studying the Word of God, and we encourage you to be serious as well. Well, here's what you do if you want to dig deeper into God's Word. Go to itiswritten.study for the It Is Written Bible Study Guides online. 25 in-depth Bible studies that will take you through the major teachings of the Bible. 
you'll be blessed, and it's something you'll want to tell others about as well. Itiswritten.study. Go further. Itiswritten.study. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. My guest is Dr. Dick Tibbetts. He is the author of this excellent book, Forgive to Live. If you don't have it, you ought to have it. You ought to get it. Get it and get another one to give to somebody else. You can get it from It Is Written, itiswritten.shop, six days a week. There are untold other places you can get it as well, as long as you get it. This is a life-changing book. Uh, Dr. Tibbetts is also the author of the new book, The Stress Recovery Effect, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Second ago, we were reframing. You wrote this book, Forgive to Live. Mm -hmm. Look, it's fair to say you wouldn't have written it had you not gone through this experience. That's absolutely fair. So Mm -hmm. so this was, in a certain sense, this is part of your recovery or sharing your recovery with others. It is. So we're talking about reframing. You were laid off. 50% of the administrators were laid off. Uh, why me? Uh, you never said you asked that question, but of course you mm-hmm. did. I did. When one and two are going, the question kind of is why not you also made hard because these were people you were very, very close to. But yep. you reframed. Briefly explain that to me again. Reframing. We were just discussing it. So reframing is, is simply seeing what's in my mindset, my picture differently. Yeah. And it involves expanding that frame. So if you think of a frame around a picture, yep. a small frame, this is all I see. But if you enlarge the frame, more things come into it. Yeah. So I'd like to use the illustration, you know, we all know the phrase that um, love is blind. Yeah. And what that means is when, I, when I'm in love with somebody, I only see their good attributes. Sure, I'm not seeing the flaws. Other people may see the flaws. They may give me warning, but I dism- dismiss that because I only see the good attributes. Love yeah. is blind. Well, anger is equally as blind. And so when I'm angry at someone, I only see their bad attributes. People fly into a blind rage. Yeah, and that's yeah. all I see is their bad attributes. That's how my best friend can become my worst enemy. It's not that they've changed. It's what I see in my picture that's changed. I saw the good points. I like you. We get along. You did this. I see you as bad. So in some ways, it's all or nothing thinking. And reframing is saying, no, the world is not black and white. It is not all or nothing. It is complex. It is dynamics. And so we mentioned one piece. These are administrators that have to make tough decisions. But there are other pieces that you can bring in. Um, you know, um, I'm not the only one that struggles. Others struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, God has a purpose in this. What is God's purpose? And all of a sudden I found myself in Orlando that I would have never gone to if I hadn't been laid off and, right. and, and wrote this book. And I said, you know what? I, the saying, I can make lemonade out of lemons. Yeah. That's reframing. I see things differently. I add to the picture. It's not denying realities, right? It is not. You know, your, your, your wife leaves you, and, and that's the end of the world. Fifteen years later, after you've forgiven her, hopefully it didn't take you that long, <laughs> and you've reframed, you're not denying the reality, and maybe there are some things that shouldn't have happened that happened, but now you're understanding better by taking more into consideration. It's not denying the reality. It's not denying the reality, it's changing your perspective. And, and I like to use the illustration, the most profound uh, example of reframing is Christ's words on the cross. When, when the soldiers were driving nails into him and crucifying him, and, and they knew how to do this. They were trained in the art of crucifixion. And Jesus said, forgive them. For they Why? know not what they do. Which is changing the perspective. Yeah. Now, you could argue they knew exactly, they knew what, exactly they what they were doing. They knew exactly what they are doing. I've said that from the pulpit. But they've had no picture. That's right of what 
this whole controversy was about. And and if if heaven was pulled apart, they'd see things. They would They would have not driven the nails if they could have seen the larger picture. Yeah. That's what reframing is. It's seeing the larger picture. It's placing things in context. So the larger picture is God needed to move me from here to there for a different work. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I, I probably wouldn't have done that on my own. But God, and so when I see God in charge rather than me in charge, then it's God's will. Now that's a pers- I'm changing my perspective. I'm sure. reframing sure. it. Yeah. Now it's not those people that fired me. It's God moved me. The, the the picture changes. Very different. And now I can forgive them because no longer are they the enemy, but they're they're a tool in God's hands that caused this to happen, and I'm thankful that it happened. Now it hurt. Yeah. But you know what? In the big picture, it was a good thing. Yes. Because growth often comes out of struggle, and and. If I can reframe those struggles into growth opportunities, there's another reframing. Yes, yes. Yeah. I read where somebody wrote that trials are actually God's chosen workmen yeah. to, to work in our character. Yes, so exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you felt bitterness towards the people who fired you initially, and that's understandable. No one would fault you for that. After you went through this process, how did your feelings towards the people involved who had been friends of yours, how did that change? And did your relationships change? Yeah, ironic. So one of the there was a committee that made the decision, yeah. a committee of three. One of the committee members, ten years later, so I've been in Florida Hospital for ten years, gets a call to Advent Health. Oh, how interesting! And now he's over the area that I'm working in, from a corporate level. So he's not my direct boss, but yeah, he has influence. And so I decided, you know, I can feel awkward around him. I can carry the old feelings, or I can sit down and talk with him and say, you know. I need to tell you something. I had some pretty bitter feelings towards you, but I have worked through that through a process of reframing. And I said, now I'm going to say this and don't misunderstand me. I forgive you. Don't get defensive. You don't have to say, I didn't do anything wrong. I was just, I said, I get all of that. I just want you to know it was important for me to say that. Mm. And, and, and we went on and we worked together. We worked well together. We're friends today. Yeah, fantastic. Yep. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, the book is just super encouraging, and it goes into the science of forgiveness, the science of anger, some of that. Yes, and, uh, yes. So you, so you went on and um, transitioned eventually into executive coaching. I feel like we could talk forever about that. So, so let's not, because we've got to talk about your new book and, and performance coaching as mm-hmm. well. Executive coaching, you're telling executives how to be better executives. Yes, yeah. and and better in specific ways. So, not knowledge wise, you know, they know their field better than I do. But as an executive, you you think that the executives have all the power and they just bark out orders. Well, if that's the way they function, that organization starts to 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 suffer because people are afraid to bring forth ideas because, you know, what in that kind of culture, you do what the boss says, sure. right? Yeah, and who cares? Just do what the boss says. Those aren't growing and dynamic organizations. So I need to teach people, executives, how to go from order giving to influencing and how to get people to think differently, how to get people to, to think creatively while still keeping their eye on the goal. We don't get a get out of jail card free. We have to meet our goals. We have to achieve our, our success. But how do I do it to engage others, to bring others along so that this is a we organization where we're getting it done Instead of a me organization, where if it isn't happening, you know, I just got to stop harder, shout louder. What are two or three things that executives, two or three mistakes um, 
that executives make that hamper organizations. Because there's everybody makes mistakes, yeah. and there's a surprising amount of really bad leaders, people in, in high positions. But what are two or three pretty common mistakes that executives make that have a damaging effect on their organization? So I like one is my way or the highway. So if you don't get what I'm telling you, get out. So that's threatening people. Yeah. And, and that always causes people to go underground. You don't want to do that. The second skill is listening. You know, as leaders, we're taught to speak. We promote things. We push programs. We push ideas. We convince people. We tell people wh- what we need to do and where we need to go. The assumption of that is big brain organizations. I'm the only one that knows what's going on. Mm. And so I need to get everybody in order because they don't understand like I understand. And, and that can really inhibit um, idea generations from multiple points. Everything has to go through the big brain. So I teach people to listen. The, I'd say the third most important thing to do is to really know how to make teams effective. Um, most executives know how to be effective themselves. Sure. Or they've never gotten to that level of the organization. But how do I translate that to make a group of people as, as effective? Especially when the group is different personalities. Yeah. Some people are type A, some are type B, some are extroverts, some are introverts. They're not all like me. And how do I take the soup of personalities and make it effective as opposed to saying, they don't get it, they don't get it, they don't get it. And it's so easy to do because if someone doesn't think like me, then they're not getting what I, what I know. Yeah. And so I write them off. What we want to do is value the team input because I've discovered that when, when multiple people bring their perspective, you ultimately come to the right answer. The shortcut is, I know the right answer, so you just do this. And, and that may be an 80% right answer, but it's missing some complexity and some ideas that I hadn't thought about that others can bring to it. Mm. Uh, performance coaching, what's that and how did you segue into that? Full circle. I grew up in a motorcycle shop. Right. And I wanted to race. Yep. Never had the money to get better never really succeeded the goals I wanted to there. So when I retired, I said, what do I want to do? I know I want to do ministry. I know I want to give back so I can help executives from what I've learned. But I'd like to help performance. So I started with motorcycle racers. So I called a few motorcycle racers, and I said, I'd like to help you be better. And who are you? And what? why do I believe that you can help me? Right. So I had to... Con- so the way I got them on board was... Number one, I won't charge you anything. And number two, if you get the results, you can pay me for results. If you don't get the results, it didn't cost you a dime. Right. And so, you know, I got a couple of racers to say, okay, I'll give that a try. And uh, we'll try it for a month and see how it helps. And so right away, I, I went in, and, and these aren't regional racers. These are top factory-sponsored racers where, you know, we're talking a million to $5 million salaries a year. Oh, well. Uh, you know, these guys have to perform. There's n- and if they don't, th- there's the next guy right behind him who wants to, right? Yeah. And so um, um, I said, one of the things I can help you with is with stress. Because we know if you're too anxious, too stressed, you'll tighten up. If you tighten up, you're not smooth, you're not relaxed, you go in the corners jerky. you got to be really smooth and relaxed. How fast do those bikes go on a track? So it depends on the track. Yeah. But so the first guys I worked with was dirt tracks, which yeah. is ovals, no okay. brakes, just flat out go and take it in the corner. 
they're probably doing 135 miles an hour. On those dirt tracks. On dirt with no brakes. That's stressful, man. How, wow. And they're, that, and they're stressful. inches apart yeah. because these bikes are very similar. So they're almost, the handlebars are you know, like that yeah. far apart, and they're going side by side and but into gonna, a corner. You're going to help them with stress. Yes. Huh. Yes. Remember the celebration? One of the thing, programs we had was a stress program yeah. because we're mind, body, and spirit. So I said, how can I take that and apply that to people who aren't trying to reduce stress in their lives but are actually increasing the increasing stress in their the stress. lives by practicing and performing at a higher level? Yeah. How can I help them to be relaxed? So the mantra that exists in racing that I learned is you have to go slower to go faster. What does that mean? Well, the racers didn't know. They just know that that's what everybody says. So I said, I'm going to translate that. To go slower means inside things are slowing mm-hmm, down. Mm-hmm. And when they slow down inside, you can actually go faster. So what does that mean? So what we did is we chose our measure of stress as heart rate because yeah. I knew that heart rate has two variables. Exercise, if you do activity, your heart rate goes up, and stress. Stress, yeah. You can be sitting there, and if you're feeling stress, your heart rate goes up. Yeah. So then I started getting baseline. So when these riders are sitting in the pits, what's their heart rate? And you know what I discovered? The average racer just sitting in the pit, waiting for an hour before their next race, was about 110. You're kidding. No. An hour before a race. Yeah, just sitting there. Wow. So I said, that's not exercise. That's not activity. That's got to be stress. Oh, sure. When they're out there racing, their heart rates, and these are the guys, these are the best racers in the world, their heart rate's 190, 195. I mean, they're going flat out 135 miles an hour with no brakes going to a turn and sling your bike sideways, and, and you got a guy right there beside you so you don't have room to... Yeah. So what I said is we've got to reduce that. And so I began to teach them lifestyle interventions and toolbox interventions. Toolbox is what I can do right now. Lifestyle is what I do that helps me in the long run. Yeah. So the lifestyle things are good nutrition, plenty of fluids, good sleep. All of those things, if you're not doing them, it's going to affect you. So I would teach them lifestyle. But the problem is, I'm dealing. remember, I'm dealing with 18, 19, 21-year-old kids oh, yeah, yeah. that are running on adrenaline. Uh-huh. And the only thing that matters is results. That's right. And so changing my diet, yeah, what is that going to do? Maybe... Yeah. Five years from now, no, it's going to make a difference now. Because if you if you have too much food in your stomach, your energy is going to digesting the food, it's not where it needs to be. If you didn't get a good night's sleep the night before the race, yeah. you're going to be more tired. If you, if you have jet lag, it's going to affect you. So all of these things are important for results. And then we teach them just now. And so one of the, one of the primary things in the book that we teach people is how I can reduce Lower my heart rate in the here and now. And the key factor in that is to breathe slowly and to breathe deeply. And just inhaling and exhaling and controlling my breath, you can watch your heart rate monitor just go down, 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 down. What sort of results did you see looking at the monitor? So, what, for example, once I taught people these, these techniques, I now have an average heart rate in the pits same racer that last year was 110 and I, this year is 60, 55, 60. That's radically different. Radically different. Has it translated to improvement on the track? Yes. So, so I'll take one racer as an example, and I've worked with multiple ones. He was good, 
And he actually won the national championship one year and oh. didn't win it the next year and won it the next year and didn't win it the next year. He was good, but he was close with everyone else. And I said, you know what? If we do these things, you'll dominate everyone else. And so the first year it was practice, learning, learning. The second year, he dominated. He, won- he was so far ahead that with three races left to go, he already clinched the number one play. Oh, well. I mean, he spanked the competition. And why? Because when they were out there racing, you know what his heart rate was? 135 miles an hour, same speed, same corner, same dirt. He was out there on the racetrack at about 155, 158, just just below the 160. What a difference from 195. Oh, yeah. Think about that. At 195, you are tight. At 165, it's mostly exercise. The stress has come down. You are loose. You are going slower to go faster. So is, is every racer in the country beating a door to your, beating a path to your Well, door? that's what happened. So the, the, the next year I had a factory team said, we want you to do all of our racers. Yeah. And we're not going to do this results orientation. We're going to pay you right up front to well, do it. And so, and so I did it, and the two-rider factory team at the end of that year came in first and second. Well, yeah. how about that? Yeah, so the results were there. And the name of the book again? The Stress Recovery Effect. And, okay. and John, what's different about it is most stress books – how to manage the stress. Yeah. And I'm saying, you know, don't worry about the stress. I mean, you can, but you can't always control that, can you? Yeah. But recovery is what's needed to balance the stress. More like how to manage you in the midst of the stress. Yeah. So our body has a lot of turn it on, turn it off mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Stress starts flicking all the switches on. And, and so my heart rate goes up, my blood pressure goes up, uh, cortisol is released into my system and it turns on certain organs. Recovery goes through and starts to turn those switches off. And so if I can learn how to turn the switches off, then I can recover from the stress, even if I can't manage the stress. Hey, this has been great fun. I wish we had more time. We must make more time in the future. Yes. Uh, thanks for all you've done and everything you're doing. God bless you in retirement. It doesn't sound like, <laughs> it sound like retirement to me, but yeah. in this new phase of ministry. Yeah, there you go. Thanks so yes. much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And thank you for joining us. It's been great fun. He's Dr. Dick Tibbetts. I'm John Bradshaw. And this was our conversation.